Straight off the bat, my favorite fact of all time, the oldest dildo that we have yet discovered is dated to 28,000 years ago. Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Ever since humans first appeared on this planet, they've been having sex. Of course, we all knew that already. But what you might not realize is that for about as long as people have been having sex, they've been having kinky sex. Even things like sex toys and pornography aren't new inventions. In fact, we can trace them back to the Stone Age. So let's talk about the history of sex. In this episode, we're going to explore the history of kink and BDSM, as well as the origins of the dildo and vibrator, and how they came to be such popular devices. We're also going to talk about the world's first pornographic novel, titled Memoirs of a Woman of Pleasure. All of these things have fascinating stories behind them, and learning about those stories can help us to better understand modern human sexuality. I am joined by Esme Louise James, who is best known for her series Kinky History, which has amassed nearly 3 million followers across her social media accounts. Esme is a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne, and her thesis traces an aesthetic of the erotic across 18th century literature. Esme is author of the upcoming book, Kinky History, The Stories Behind Our Intimate Lives, Past and Present. She also hosts the popular Kinky History podcast. This is going to be an incredible conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. If you love the science of sex as much as I do, consider becoming a friend of the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. The Kinsey Institute is the world's premier research organization on sex and relationships, and you can help them continue the legacy of Dr. Alfred Kinsey, whose pioneering research changed everything we think we know about sex. Visit kinseyinstitute.org to make an impact. Your donations can help support ongoing research projects on critical topics. You can also show your support by following Kinsey Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for supporting Sex Science. If you're a fan of this show, then I know you're hungry for sexuality knowledge. But if you're also looking to find a community of like-minded, sex-positive professionals, check out the Sexual Health Alliance. Shaw connects you with world-class experts and an active group of passionate, fun, and welcoming students. Shaw is at the forefront of sexuality education and hosts monthly live events, both online and in person, with students from all over the world and from all types of backgrounds. They come together to learn, travel, connect, and sometimes form friendships. So, podcast fans, continue advancing your sexuality knowledge, have fun, and meet fantastic people in the process at Sexual Health Alliance. You can find their upcoming events and online certification programs at sexualhealthalliance.com. Hi, Esme, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hello, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. I am very excited to speak with you. So you've become something of a social media sex historian. You've been (laughs) educating the masses about our kinky pasts, and you have amassed quite the following. So as a starting point, tell us a little bit about that journey. How did you get interested in kinky history in the first place? 
It's been a very long and strange journey. It was one of those areas of interest that I just kind of found myself in at the university very, very early on in my academic career. You know, from undergraduate, I was really interested when we I really started to study history about the fact that so many of the questions that we are asking today in the media about sexuality, gender and identity were the same questions we were asking, you know, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, a thousand years ago. And it was something that just really resonated resonated with me very early on. And that just kind of became my special interest for so many years. And I really didn't think that that many people would also be interested in what I did and my research until I got to lockdown and, you know, by myself, isolated with a bottle of champagne. I thought it was a really good idea to put this on the internet uh, just to share it with my friends and family as a bit of a laugh. Didn't really know that there would be hundreds of thousands of people that would literally see it within three days time. And it kind of blew up from there. Well, I love that. And, you know, sometimes (laughs) our careers take us to unexpected places. And it turns out, yeah, people want to learn about sex, including sexual history. So I appreciate what you're doing in the space. Now, sex in general is a subject that is often trivialized and sometimes sensationalized. And when talking about the sexual proclivities of famous figures of the past, I think there's often a tendency for people to share it in a way that comes across as more gossipy than anything. Like, oh my God, you're not going to believe what Albert Einstein liked to do in bed, (laughs) right? And, you know, this is sometimes used as a way of discrediting the contributions of historical figures because then people write them off as being these perverts. Now, I appreciate that your work is not at all like that. You know, rather than going about this in a sensationalizing fashion, you're going about it in a humanizing fashion. Like, these people were just as kinky as we are today. So let's normalize it. So make the case for my listeners, why is it important for us to understand kinky history and to approach it in a way that isn't centered around shame and sensationalized gossip? I think the very essence of what I do is all about the destigmatization of shame. Because when you see these great figures from history and you see uh, you see their names in history books, in statues, and they become these things that are untouchable. And what's the very thing that we can touch instantly? And that's sex. And once you know that and you can see humans who are so far removed from us that were touchable, tangible beings with the same bodily sensations, the freaky ones, the yucky ones, the fun ones, you start to develop this kind of sense of empathy to the people who are generally seen as most unempathizable. They're seen as larger than life. And if we can do that with great historical figures, it makes it so much easier to do that with fellow humans around us. If we can look back and we can see, you know, James Joyce's fart letters and we can have a laugh at them, but at the same time, we can see that that was actually a beautiful moment of husband and wife negotiating a desire and finding a very empathetic way to do that with one another, then we can kind of look to the desires of people in our own lives. And we can also use that as a model of how to negotiate more harmonious relationships. That's what it's all about at the end of the day. Yeah. And I love the way that you frame that, you know, that these individuals, these historical figures, often they're kind of idolized and put on a pedestal and we don't necessarily even think of them as being human in in some ways, but you know, they're just like us and had many of the same sexual desires, sexual practices. And so it does humanize them and make them feel less like they're one of these untouchables as you put it. So yeah, I think that that's important. And I think it also helps us to understand just how, 
you know, a lot of the things that we think maybe are new and different when it comes to sex and sexual practices actually aren't. <laughs> you know, I think every generation likes to think that they invented everything when it comes to sex. <laughs> but no, these things have a very long history, don't they? Absolutely. And I think, you know, a classic example of that while we're talking about historical figures is someone like Jean-Jacques Rousseau. We kind of remember him as this incredible philosopher and students will have studied him generally at school or at university for his kind of enlightenment thoughts. And then you get to something like his confessions, which is at the end of his life, a giant autobiography in which he talks about all of his uh, desires and fantasies to be spanked and dominated. And he tries to work out why he has these desires. And at the very end, of his book, he finishes by saying, I've written this all down in the hopes that in the future, someone can work out how a man who is seen as a famous influential figure, as I know I'm going to be remembered as, can also be so human and so unable to understand my own inclinations. And I think that's beautiful. And and in essence, I I would love to think that we're kind of doing what Rousseau wanted us to do uh, back in the 18th century now. (laughs) Yeah, it kind of took us a while to get there. (laughs) it's, It's in part because sex is so stigmatized and so taboo as a topic of discussion, you know, that a person like that would only write that or confess that at the end of their life in, you know, a series of letters that, you know, largely got buried. Most people don't know that fact about him. Yeah. But as the science of sex grew as a field, we've started to understand these things more and more. But I think all of this ultimately points to why it's important to destigmatize and take the shame out of sex so that we can answer and understand these questions that have vexed people for hundreds of years. People want to understand sex and human sexuality. So let's dive into kinky history. Now, a question I often get from journalists is whether people today are kinkier than ever before. And I think the whole Fifty Shades of Grey phenomenon contributed to the rise in cultural awareness around kink, for better or for worse. You know, I mean, we all know Fifty Shades had its share of problems. But it seems like kink is everywhere today. And that's kind of fed this impression that it's a new thing. But it's not, not by a long shot. So what can you tell us about how long humans have been into kink and BDSM? And can you share any historical examples that illustrate how this is anything but a brand new sexual interest? Oh, absolutely. I think it's my favorite topic of all time. (laughs) (laughs) You know, what we're looking at today is that we have this rise of really kind of putting uh, labels and terminology on inclinations that we've had for literally thousands of years. You go back to the ancient world and we have so many examples of what we would now classify as sadomasochistic practices. Uh, the rituals to the goddess Inanna in ancient Mesopotamia included all of her worshippers getting together, cross-dressing and having orgies until they fell down in tears and pain because they were so in love with this dominatrix figure of the goddess. Um, you go to something like a, a, in ancient Rome and there's multiple depictions of women goddesses whipping other people. And this was actually part of some of the the initiation rituals that they had in Sparta and everything were these kind of flagellation rituals that were meant to be 
pleasurable experience. We see the same thing in the Etruscan civilization. Uh, you can still visit the tomb of the whipping, actually, that's left over from the Etruscan civilization. Uh, and on, on the different frescoes on the wall, you have depictions of what would be two men kind of spanking and flagellating a woman. And then in the next fresco, they're all making passionate love. So it's, you know, telling a story all the way around. And this isn't something that just kind of died out after the ancient world goes away. Coming towards the 18th century, which is my favourite area of history, we have brothels and uh, sexual practices that became so prolific, like strangulation and flagellation, that we actually had to start putting laws in place in England and France because so many people were getting hurt trying to participate in these sexual practices in their bedroom without instruction. So we actually had, you know, a regulation of brothels about how much they could strangle someone, when they could strangle someone, and it just became such a craze, you know. Spanking became known as the English vice. And that's just crazy to think about now. But there was just such a common practice. And we come towards today and we've kind of had that sweeping under the rug of all of these behaviours and to do with the fact that they were dangerous. I think, you know, we started to kind of stigmatise them a lot. There's a lot of argument there about what happened. But now we're seeing this as a brand new thing because we are finally finding a way to kind of ethically do these practices and educate on how to do them safely. And that's what's new here. It's not the actual practices themselves. It's the conversation around them. And because of that, because there hasn't been any conversation, I think we're having this kind of conservative kickback of like, no, no, we're all creepy today because of the internet. But that's <laughs> so far from the case. If anything, the internet's helping us learn how to do and practice these uh, in a safer and ethical fashion. Yeah. And you make a really important point there about the internet. You know, the internet gets blamed for everything. <laughs> everything. <laughs> and a lot of people like to think that Going online, access to the internet is what is changing people's sexual practices because it's introducing us to all of these new things that were never part of our sexual repertoire before. But the reality is that these online communities just connect us more and have given us new terms and labels and ways to find information and find community. And so it's not really the sexual practices themselves that are changing. It's just that access to information, the ability to connect with other people, to form these communities, and then to forge identities around those specific sexual interests or behaviors. So yeah, I think that's a common misconception about sort of how sexual practices are changing. You know, if we look through history, we see that these things are all there. The threads are all there. It's just we have different ways to express and to connect them. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I know I've spoken about this in my TED Talk, so I, I am repeating myself a little bit, but I really think that TikTok has been one of the best places where this has happened in recent times because you have this algorithm that instantly sends out information once it's tried to work out your personality that it thinks you're going to like. And I know so many people who've worked out and found like a kink community or something from TikTok or have found a queer community and have discovered these aspects of their sexuality that they wouldn't have explored before. And, you know, you then have that perception of, oh, TikTok's making everyone gay and kinky, but that's not the case. They're finding language finally that can help them express these desires they've always had. Um, or they have 
education about how to go and practice what were originally fantasies and maybe they've wanted to experiment with but wouldn't know where to start. One of my best friends, you know, from all of this, uh, prior to the TikTok, she just recently got him married, a happy long-term monogamous relationship, and now they're in this fantastic open polyamorous kinky relationship and it was all because of TikTok and I find that really interesting because I've seen the two of them just kind of grow into these uh, well-educated and also happy and empowered people that weren't the same people they were three years ago and I think that's incredible. Yeah and that's something that I'm sure we're going to see more research on and more writing on in the future is the role of social media in sexual identity exploration and development also when it comes to relationship structure and practices and all of that as well there's certainly a role that social media plays and that those algorithms play in terms mm -hmm. of the information that we're exposed to and then further how do we internalize that and what do we do with all that information that we have so <laughs> something to keep your eye on in the future <laughs> Now, another thing that people tend to think of as a new or recent phenomenon is sex toys. It's true that in recent years, sex toys have really gone mainstream. In fact, if you go onto Walmart's website right now, you'll find that you can buy butt plugs, cock rings, vibrators, strokers, and more. And in the not-too-distant past, it would have been scandalous for a place like Walmart to be in the adult toy business, but it's not an issue now because everyone is doing it. Target's selling them. A lot of the big pharmacy chains are selling them too. You know, there's a lot of money to be made in selling sex toys, but I digress a little bit. So while <laughs> While sex toys are more accessible, more high-tech, and more affordable than ever, they're definitely not due. Now, you did an episode of your podcast on the history of the dildo. So what can you tell us about that? When did humans start making dildos? I mean, straight off the bat, my favorite fact <laughs> of all time, the oldest dildo that we have yet discovered is dated to 28,000 years ago. Uh, it was found in the German cave in a series of 14 fragments. And in what I think is my favorite quotation in a research paper, uh, they stated that when they put them all together, they had no choice but to determine it was a phallic object for phallic use because it was highly polished at the top from overuse. And that is just such a beautiful sentence. Um, but we found similar models all over the ancient world uh, that very clearly were used for insertion and, and we uh, have depictions of them being used. By the time we come to ancient Greece and we have the invention of writing and everything, we record those practices. So you have plays like Lysistrata uh, written by Aristophanes that depicts women using a, a series of dildos on one another in order to quell the gnawing of their flesh while they can't pleasure their husbands because they want their husbands to go off and negotiate uh, peace and end the war. So they're like, girls, we're going on sex strike. Everyone grab your dildos. And it's not just dildos. You know, they, they had, they described double-ended dildos. Uh, they describe well, what would be early examples of, you know, cock rings and everything during these times. And that's just from writing. So then when you see these objects from 28,000 years ago, and then after we invent writing, they start <laughs> describing what was happening. That's not a coincidence. But then, you know, you have all the inventions of the proper cock ring in jade that happens in like 13th century China. And these are well-recorded practices because especially in ancient China and in early China, uh, you have these 
Uh, this belief that sex is incredibly important to bring your body's energies into balance and to be able to achieve a happy afterlife. So you would literally bury your loved ones with their favorite sex toys uh, because if they got stuck in their tomb, they would use their dildo to pleasure themselves, give themselves an orgasm, and they were able to go to the spiritual dimension. And I think that's a perfect example of the fact that sex toys all throughout history have been used as both a sexual aid and for sexual pleasure. And they're two very different things and they come in this beautiful Venn diagram. Uh, they give this sense of autonomy. They can also give the sense of empowerment and, and pleasure all come into play with one another. And I think that's that's really wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's also fascinating. And yeah, bury me with my favorite sex toys. I'm going to have to make a list of Honestly. them so people know what to throw in there with me. <laughs> <laughs> quite different today than what they did uh, back in ancient China when we had like these gorgeous, you know, jade uh, phallic <laughs> objects. And now they're just like little vibrating bunnies. <laughs> I don't know. For some people, you're going to have to order a larger coffin to fit all of their favorite toys. <laughs> some, some people I know have pretty extensive collections. I'd be quite busy in the tomb. <laughs> quite busy. Now, since we're on the subject of sex toys, let's talk about the history of the vibrator for a moment. Yes. Now, there's a popular story out there about the vibrator having been invented by doctors who were treating women for what we now know is a bogus health condition called hysteria. And the story was basically that orgasm was the cure for hysteria, but it was taking too long for the doctors to give these women orgasms by hand, so they developed the vibrator to cut down on the length of office visits. But it turns out that that story isn't exactly true. So what can you tell us about the origins of the vibrator? Where did this device originate, and how did it come to be so popular? Oh, the origins of the vibrator is one of the like, those myths that just refuses to die out. It's such a stubborn one. Um, Dr. Haley Lieberman, when she uh, eventually put out her research debunking this, I could barely make a dint on this myth. And I think that's, you know, one of the cases where the internet, you can kind of see where gossip about sex toys just spreads like wildfire. And it's a shame because the true story is so much more interesting. Uh, hysteria became a it kind of rose in popularity as a diagnosis um, at the same moment in the 1800s as we did invent the vibrator. But what's so interesting is that the vibrator was initially uh, invented for men. It was invented to cure a range of ailments um, on the men, man's body. And the closest that we ever came to using the vibrator for a sexual purpose originally was to stimulate underneath the balls uh, to kind of try and cure impotence. And very explicitly in all of the writings by the likes of uh, Dr. Granville, he stated that you cannot use a vibrator on women because they are so susceptible to sexual stimulation because they're so hysterical that this should never be used on them. It would be dangerous. So we have this kind of mention of the vibrator and hysteria together. So when later in 1999, Rachel Main uh, is writing a book, she merely hypothesizes that potentially there was a time that they were both used together. And that's why Dr. Granville had to be like, never do this again. Uh, but that just kind of spread like wildfire. 
what really happened is we have this invention for men. And by the time that we had this device, which is quite horrific, if you've ever seen a picture of the original vibrator. It's a little scary. It's terrifying. It looks like it would literally just kind of like punch you continually while shaking. And that's not pleasurable, but... But when they eventually were sold into homes in the kind of early years of the 1900s, one of the ways that you needed to advertise products was to make them appeal to women because women were tasked with buying and decorating the house. And so you market them to the entire family. So the vibrator became this cure-all device. It was said to uh, relieve women of their wrinkles. It will cure your dad's headaches and it will help your grandparents with their back pain. It was a one for the whole family device. And it was around this time that, you know, the vibrator becomes a product in so many households. Like you would have your, your kettle, you would have your mixer and you would have your vibrator. And that's genuinely beautiful. And it really takes until Betty Dodson comes around in the 1970s and she starts running these sex body workshops for women. And she says, Hey, women. I'm going to teach you how to actually achieve pleasure through in your body through clitoral stimulation. And you know what's going to be helpful to do that? Grab that vibrator that's been sitting in your kitchen and we can actually use a product that we all have in our house to give us pleasure. And she runs these workshops, which is with what is essentially a common household item and teaches women how to clitorally stimulate themselves. Which is where we get the vibrator that we know today, but that's not until the 1970s. It's a longer story. It's a more interesting story, how it went from a a device invented for men for a kind of magical cure to an incredible sex educator coming along and being like, do you know what it could also be good for? (laughs) (laughs) It is an absolutely fascinating story. And yeah, I know the hysteria story, a lot of people love it because it just, it sounds very compelling and I get it. And I've told that story for many years. I believed it because I had heard it so many times myself. Uh, But it turns out, you know, sometimes the things that we thought we knew about the past aren't true. And that's why it's important that we go back and we correct the historical record. But as you mentioned, it's a lot harder to do that than it might seem. You know, you can put out as many social media videos as you want, write as many popular media (laughs) articles as you want, but it doesn't necessarily reach everybody. No, absolutely not. And I think that's one of the reasons, even when I'm talking about the history of the vibrator, I will generally lead with the story that people know, and then I will go on to debunk it. Um, And when Hayley Liberman did put out her article, which, you know, officially debunked this story and proved why there's no evidence, one of the arguments that she made, uh, which I always reiterate when retelling this story, is about why this myth was dangerous. And it's because it sets this idea that we're on this linear progression of sexual ignorance to sexual liberation, that women were so ignorant about their bodies that they didn't even know that they were being pleasured by a doctor and they would just let themselves go into the doctor's office and let it happen to them. And they had no idea. And so incorrect with what we know from history and in kind of setting 
a bit of unease in the fact that we're not just this big sexually liberated intelligent society. Uh, we have a lot that we owe to the people from the past and a lot that we can still learn from them. And I love that argument that she made. And that's why I think it's so important now that she's done all this research to kind of continually tell it um, and why it's important. Absolutely. And Allie's a former guest on the podcast. She's been on here a few times and (laughs) she always has lots of fascinating things to say. Oh, that's great. (laughs) So let's talk about porn. Now, you also did an episode (laughs) of your podcast about what is often described as the world's first pornographic novel titled Memoirs of a Woman of Pleasure. And it was published in the 1700s. And whenever I teach human sexuality courses in college and I cover my porn unit, we always talk about the history of porn. And this is one of the books that that we talk about. And I read some spicy excerpts from it. So the (laughs) book was a bestseller, but it was also widely banned because it was just super controversial. So tell us a little bit about this book and why it holds an important place in the history of porn and sex. Memoirs of a Woman of Pleasure is very widely recognised as the first ever pornographic novel. At the time that it was written in uh, the 1740s, uh, the novel was just emerging as a genre. And at the same time, we hadn't even given a name to the uh, genre of pornography yet. And this novel was really influential in actually defining both what a novel is and what porn is. And it is such an interesting read even today. It stands the test of time, I think because of its humour and lightheartedness and its kind of unapologetic approach to depictions of sexuality. Broadly, it describes the story of Fanny Hill, who is a sex worker in London, as she completes her journey into the world of pleasure and she transitions from a naive country girl to a very experienced worker who will later become married and have her beautiful uh, heteronormative love story. But in the course of this tale, Fanny experiences a range of pleasures from kinks, fetishes. Uh, Her first experience is a queer experience. Um, She experiences orgies. She experiences like a range of different desires and kind of categorizes what she believes to be the most desirable sexual practices to the least desirable. The least desirable, of course, being what brought the book to prosecution, which was the depiction of a love scene between two men. And in the book, that is the only sexual act that Fanny just absolutely denounces. She's like, we, and she, you know, takes it to the police and everything. And that's what actually brought the book to prosecution very, very soon after its publication. It didn't necessarily have to do with all of the other factors. Um, but that one scene was so controversial in a 1700s world that was renegotiating sexuality. It was when we really started to heavily prosecute homosexual behaviours to a stage where there was death sentences attached to it. And so when John Cleland came out with this book, um, he actually wrote the denunciation of the homosexual act into the book solely so he wouldn't be prosecuted. And he still, he still was. It basically ruined his life for a very long period of time. But I think the book now stands today as this kind of testament to this moment of sexual exploration 300 years ago that's just really beautiful as a historical document, but also still enjoyable today. It's funny. It's so funny in places. Well, I think what's amazing about that is that copies of it 
still survived, you know, because when books were banned in the past, people would round them up, burn them, get rid of them, you know, <laughs> in one way or another, you know, and, and they weren't necessarily made of the most durable materials. And so, you know, the fact that some of these things have survived so long, I think is pretty amazing, but they do give us this very fascinating snapshot of a different period in time. And mm-hmm. that is such an important book in the history of porn. So thanks for sharing a little bit about it with us. And for people who are interested or curious and want to read it themselves, you can actually find copies of it today. It's been republished, reprinted many times, and you can get your hands on a copy and it's it's an entertaining read. It actually still remains the most read pornographic work in history, which I think is absolutely incredible. Uh, still today, even uh, in the the lines of, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey, this is still the most popular pornographic work. And I think, you know, a lot of it comes down to, as you say, as soon as it was prosecuted, it went underground. People would start writing out what they remembered and then publishing kind of fan fiction copies to the <laughs> point where you can get all of this literature from the 18th century that's just like the adventures of Fanny Hill and they're like fan fiction that we would read today on Wattpad or something but she just became this figure that people would then write about. Fanny has gone everywhere according to these works. Man not even fan fiction is new that goes back several centuries as well. (laughs) She was she was really the original inspiration. So in the next episode, we're going to dive into more kinky history, but I have one more question for you before we wrap this up, which is what is a day in the life of a sex historian like? (laughs) Where do you do your research and how do you decide who or what to study? I don't think it's ever as sexy as it probably looks online. Most of the time, it's just me in a gremlin cave in my pajamas, you know, buried under a pile of books. But it can look like reading uh, scholarly works from today, or it can look like me in front of an archive for eight hours at a time, trailing through someone's letters until finally I get to the juicy bit that I was after. And that juicy bit will be a paragraph in my book, or it will be a 60 second video on TikTok, and it will have taken me two weeks to get there, but I'm glad we did. And I'm glad we have people like you who are willing to do that painstaking work to really help us better understand our history, including our sexual history. So thank you. Thank you so much. This is a delight. Well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Esme. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? Absolutely. Uh, So you can find me at Esme.Louise across TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. I also have my book Kinky History coming out uh, very soon at the end of this year in Australia, but international publication early next year. And you can also find Kinky History, the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love that. And I can't wait for the book to come out. And when it does, maybe we'll have you back on the show to tell us a little bit more about our Kinky History. That sounds absolutely wonderful. This has been such a pleasure and an honor. The feeling is mutual. So (laughs) thank you so much for your time. And thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.